I think that is a key insight of my career, that being able to understand that when I land in a company, understanding that company's culture, understanding that company's goals, and being able to speak the business language has been part of what's been a big part of my success, because I can translate what security is doing to how it matters to them. Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Park, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, I have Curtis Koenig with me. Curtis is the head of AppSec at Gen, based out of Holland. Curtis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Harshal. Nice to be here. Curtis, I'm super excited about our conversation today. There's a lot of very exciting things, and I would love for you to just give a little bit of background about yourself, tell our audience who you are, what do you do, how did you end up in Amsterdam? That's a fun story. So who I am is I'm this crazy American who lives in Amsterdam who was looking for a job in Europe and uh, was actually targeting Germany. And the recruiter said, hey, how about the Netherlands? I said, well, I don't speak Dutch. And he said, well, we have like a 98% literacy rate in English. You'll be fine here. I said, oh, great. Sounds like an awesome idea. Uh, so I made the jump with my family. And uh, I currently am, as you said, the head of application security at Gen, where I support a team of engineers. And we own how Gen builds software from the moment we begin designing it to the moment we retire it. So everything in between, all the all the technical bits you would do, all the non-technical bits you would do to try and make software as secure as possible. That's amazing. And what does Gen do for the people who don't know what Gen does? So uh, Gen is the brainchild of Avast and Norton LifeLock. Uh, they came together about a year ago, and we cover 500 million users with our brands and our products and our services today. And we supply products you know really well, like Avast Antivirus or Norton LifeLock's products, a suite of products for identity protection and those sort of things. We also have Avira and AVG under our banner. Um, so we're a full suite of security products for consumers. That's awesome. Now, Curtis, one of the things that caught my attention was as we were you know, looking into your history, into security, your career journey, it was fascinating for me to see that you know, you've spent a lot of time in, in incredibly sophisticated tech companies on the West Coast. You've spent some time with financial services companies, you've done a lot of different things, which is not very common. I mean, I talk to a lot of people and this is a very unique background. What have you learned? I mean, out of so many different companies, different cultures uh, across FinServe and, and West Coast tech companies and what have you, do you care to share any insights? Yeah, I think I'm really lucky to have a really interesting career because I'm the kind of person who likes an interesting challenge. And I think that's really where it comes from is, I, you know, I started my career at Microsoft in a tech company. But I also like to ask the question, hey, what's happening outside of this sort of rarefied world of tech? You know, we like to think that we're building amazing things, but that doesn't always translate to what's happening in the rest of the world. The reality is, is the rest of the world are non-tech businesses. You take all the small and medium businesses and all the large businesses, tech makes up a very small portion of that. Yes, they make a, a very large amount of money, but when it comes to what's happening in the real world, that's different. So being able to take that skill set 
from tech and understand how it's being applied in the real world and how security is actually being done outside of that sort of rarefied bubble, I think is really important because I think it gives you a perspective on how other people think about risk, how they think about what they're trying to achieve and how security fits into that model. Security obviously isn't for even a large amount of tech companies, the first and primary thing they do. I mean, yeah, there's a whole group of tech companies out there like Gen and other companies that sell security software. But when you look at the sort of the bigger ones, like the Microsoft and the Googles and the Apples, security isn't their first thing. It's not the first thing for most of them. And so understanding how users interact with that, whether the security thing you're doing tries to make their life linear or not, does it help the business sell a product or not? I think is a really great insight that I've learned by making that shift a couple of times into different areas. You know, I've done open source at Mozilla, which taught me a lot about how different cultures sort of look at that. That was the first time we really had a lot of contact with outside cultures. You know, I worked at uh, Humana, which was a healthcare company in the US, which has a very different view of security and privacy. I worked at Wells Fargo, you know, large financial institutions look at risk very differently than everybody else on the planet. And then now, of course, leading a team here, how this organization looks at risk in terms of how they build their products is a really important thing. And I think that is a key insight of my career, that being able to understand that when I land in a company, understanding that company's culture, understanding that company's goals, and being able to speak the business language has been part of what's been a big part of my success, because I can translate what security is doing to how it matters to them. You know, we all love to think that security matters to them. And to some degree it does. But if you're not speaking the language they understand about it or that they feel is addressing the risks that they care about, then you can have a much bigger barrier to success. That is such an important point that a lot of people don't pay attention to. What you just mentioned is probably the single most important factor for determining if a security professional will be successful in the career or not. One of the very important factors, being able to translate your core, strong technical views, insights, thoughts, opinions into the business language and communicating it effectively to the business. Now, you having known that already, was the jump from you know a tech company to a financial services or healthcare, was that difficult or were you at all anxious or concerned about making those things? Because as you said, it's, it's very different. It's always top of mind when I make any sort of career mode. The culture of the company matters a great deal to me. I think it's part of how we interact as humans. You know, we want to know that we're we're moving into areas that matter for us. I always like to frame how I lead teams in the concept of AMP, which is uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. How do I help the people I'm working with gain autonomy in what they're doing? How do I give them the rope to make the decisions they need to make? How do I help them gain mastery of a technology or a skill or a soft skill that they need to succeed? And how do I connect that purpose? And that purpose is the hard part. That's where you're looking at what are the company's goals? What are the area's goals? What are my team's goals? And can I make a line that connects them? And that really helps people understand that their work has value because nobody wants to do work that nobody cares about. And so I think, as your point is there, that being able to look at the culture and understand who they are and what makes them tick is how you connect a successful security program to that. If you understand what the business is trying to achieve and what your customers want ultimately out of that, you can tie your security initiatives to that and understand the prioritization too. Because we always have a litany of security things we'd love to do, but which ones are the most important? 
and how that prioritization and how that investment in those security efforts happens is by properly understanding what the business wants to get done. Because no one is doing it just purely for security outcomes. So how do you actually do that? So the reason I ask this I ask question, a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. Because the reason I'm so asking I, this I question is- I start by actually researching the company. I want to understand. I look at what they say publicly. Like, hey, what are your values? How do you position your product? A lot of people knock on Apple, but I'm going to give them a little bit of props here. And I call it the Apple effect. For better or worse, Apple has built itself up this aura of having the best security and privacy. How do they do that? By really getting on stage and talking about it in a way that their customers understand. Does Apple have the best security and privacy? They might. I don't know that I think that they have the best. I think other people have as good as. But Apple has turned that into something. And I think they really thought about that. Like, How does our security and privacy efforts enhance what we want to do with customers? I think if you're doing that inside of the company, you're going to be just as successful. It means you have to go and you have to ask questions of the leadership, often of your own team, like, hey, what are our goals? What are we aiming for? How does that align to what the business is doing and what they're aiming for? Do I understand what their OKRs are? Do I understand what their business objectives are. And you know, when you go to all hands, I want to go to all hands. I'll ask questions of the CEO when they let us like, hey, what are the goals? Like explain to me what this effort is about if I don't understand. And I dig into that and I really ask, do I understand what the risk is? And when I step into a room with a risk that I may not fully understand like how it fits in the business, I'll ask them questions like, hey, here's a possible outcome to this. Would you rather have A, B, or C happen? And that starts to really frame the direction I want to go in terms of positioning a security outcome and understanding whether it's the right one. You've got it. You really got to dig in and ask questions outside of your area to understand. Yeah. So let's take a, a scenario, for example. Let's say you're in an all hands and the CEO or, or you know somebody else and the leadership said, hey, we need to expand into Europe and we need to conquer this other vertical. And for that, we need to you know, launch this so-and-so product or expand our product in so-and-so way, right? So it typically tends to be relatively high level, relatively strategic. How do you take that level of information and make it actionable for your security team? Like, what does that look like? So when I'm building my roadmaps, I'm looking at a whole litany of things, obviously. And that's the challenge of the position I'm in. Is that I spend about half of my time being very technical, digging really deep with engineers to actually achieve the stuff, and the other half building roadmaps and strategic goals. How do I build those strategic goals? In conversations with the other leaders, by trying to, again, I try to distill it. Okay, we want to move into Europe. That gives us a, now we have it, which we're already in Europe, but if we were trying to do that, that has a whole litany of challenges in terms of privacy and security because of how Europeans think about that differently. So, you know, hey, what Germans think about privacy and what, say, Czechs think about privacy or French think about are slightly different, but we do have GDPR. So we, at least we have a framework to start from. Like, hey, we have this framework we need to move towards. We know we want to do business here. In order to do business here, we have to meet these sorts of things. So when we begin thinking about that, privacy is obviously a component of that, but security fits into that. If I can't guarantee the integrity integrity of the data, I can't achieve privacy. If I can't you know, guarantee the confidentiality of data, I can't achieve privacy. So how we then go about positioning efforts to ensure that we meet one, external targets, and two, the customer expectations in those locales is how I frame that. It's the same, you know, in the US, you have, you know, things like CCPA in California. 
And the other thing that I've also positioned many times with a lot of the companies is as they've expanded, like, hey, we can't have a patchwork of stuff. That's really, really hard to keep. What we need to do is find the best security model we can have. Maybe that's GDPR. And then just apply it to everybody. Guess what? We turn around to our American customers and say, hey, you should do business with us because we are operating at a higher level of security privacy for you as we're meeting this other country's standards and we're just giving them to you for free. So if you want them, we're going to give them to you as well. And I think that also simplifies how you're doing that. So you've got to, that, to me, that's sort of a win. Like, think about that. Hey, how do I position this in a way that gets me to a higher objective goal that I can then sell across the business for another outcome? That's this really interesting way to strategize things, which also brings more importance to this roadmap setting and strategy. So be proactive about what are you actually having your team work on? Be be proactive and thoughtful about where the rest of the organization is moving. Do you have any tips or suggestions on how frequently this should be done, the strategy roadmap exercise for for a generic, you know, let's just say application security team, if you're operating in an environment similar to yours? Honestly, we're having these conversations very often. People love to set three-year plans, but if you set a three-year plan without understanding that the world around you is going to change while you set it, you're going to end up where you wanted to be three years ago, but the world is in a completely different place. So for me, I tend to revisit these plans about once a quarter, at least with my key staff. We might not change anything. For the most part, we don't. We're usually moving little bits around to make sure we're continuing to move in the right direction. And we're also making sure that we're achieving the goals that we knew we had to get. There are certain goals that never grew. I think you can be really accurate within about a 12-month time frame. The world moves fast, but not so fast that within a 12-month time frame, you're probably not going to need to do that. What I'm looking at in two years or three years might change in how I get there. The goal itself is probably going to remain the same, but the tactics of how I achieve that may change. We can use automated code scanning as a great source. I mean, it, when my early days, we didn't really have a whole lot of automated scanners. We do a lot of stuff by manual reading. When automated code scanners came out, we could take a lot of that manual work and move it to the side after we built that. We kept the same program, same idea. We just had machines to help us now. And I think that's going to be a constant thing in, in the industry. The changing technology is going to help us achieve some of those tactics while the strategic goals are likely going to stay close to pretty much the same thing. And new ones are going to appear. You know, it's not uncommon for, you know, sort of the threat level to move around. So I think that what I'm really moving around is what's happening way out there. Okay, the threat level on this thing is moved up and this one is sort of moved down. We're going to make more investment in that direction. We're going to keep going in both of them. It's just where we make the level of investment. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, sort of in alignment with setting up a roadmap and a strategy. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier, you know, when we were just chatting before the podcast was around security being a sort of a quality metric in a way, right? So you have to make sure oh, yeah. people, your engineering organization to be successful with security, which sort of is more operational, more day-to-day. How do you suggest thinking about that aspect in terms of like, what do you actually need to do to align with engineering better or to make security like a, a solid quality metric that engineering can actually reflect upon. And thanks for bringing that up. I think by speaking of security and a quality metric, we're speaking in a language that engineers understand. This is again about how do I speak in a language that my audience understands? Because they, they may not necessarily speak security. You know, just like I'm trying to speak risk to the board or risk to the business, I'm trying to speak the metrics of which engineers understand and which software development organizations understand. So that's part number one. 
Part number two is, yeah, okay, now that I understand their roadmap and what they're building, where their challenges are, I'm trying to find wins. So one of the other things I usually say to teams, like, I can find very interesting things in a security tool set that help you with that. Like, hey, a race condition, while it is a security challenge, it's also a performance challenge. I can help you increase performance by helping you find these things and understanding and letting you then make a determination about Hey, where does this fit into my roadmap and priorities for what I do engineering? The reality is that no one's ever going to release software that doesn't have a security problem. We all, we know that we do it. Like the question is, is it worth fixing right now? And what's that level of fix? Like, hey, great, I found a security issue. It causes the app to crash one out of every trillion executions. Okay, that that sucks. But so what? If I'm doing a trillion executions a year, that means I crashed once a year. Am I going to spend a million dollars to fix that? Probably not. But the business needs to be able to, and the engineering organization needs to understand how to prioritize that stuff with it. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm a long way around the question here is it's understanding the risk metric, it's understanding the engineering organization's goals and their own constraints on being able to fix that, to give them information. And I think that's where it is a servicing. We're helping give them quality information that they're using to then set their roadmaps and their priorities that they're doing today. And at the same time, on the other side, we're looking long down the road strategically to go, okay, what's coming at us they don't see? And then how do we translate that into actionable items for them? That makes sense. And in terms of the actual metric, do you have any suggestions on, you know, the metrics can be a whole different conversation by itself, but any high-level metrics that you use to, to reflect security as a quality metric that has worked for you? I think there's a lot of classic metrics, you know, mean time to find, mean time to fix that everyone sort of talks about. I actually prefer looking at ones like how often do we reintroduce the same security vulnerability in the same set of code or in the same family of code? Because that also tells us about a bunch of other stuff. Like, hey, is my training program getting through to developers? Well, if I keep seeing the same development organization make the same mistakes over and over and over, I have to ask myself, are we not training them correctly? Are we not giving them information great? Is it just not getting through? Because that's wasted effort. They're fixing the same thing over and over and over. Are our tools not telling them early enough? Like, are we not integrated in their IDE? So there's, I think metrics like that are great, not only for the other team, but you have to ask very hard questions about yourself about why they exist the way they do. Because you definitely want to see, you know, your bug glide path go down as you develop software with security integrated. Like, if I'm telling developers early and often what this looks like, they should be able to prioritize this. And then when it comes to release time and being able to pass under the bug bar to release, they should have already been there a long time ago because we've told them everything we can possibly tell them. If you know there are late-breaking security bugs that show up like that, it's usually because somebody fixes something that causes a late-breaking security bug, but that's a different sort of issue, I think. But I think the metrics, yeah, you're going to use a bunch of classic metrics, number one, because we all know that they work. They've been proven again and again and again. But you also have to look at how that fits into the business. What was really interesting to me was the fact that you're going after the root causes of things, right? Like if if a pattern emerges, that means there's something foundationally wrong or foundationally needs to be addressed. And that's where you focus your efforts on, which is obviously better than playing whack-a-mole and, address, and looking at each issue in an individual silo. So... I feel like you're a very framework-oriented thinker. You, you you like to think of it in patterns and address the underlying root cause, which probably is what makes a security program more scalable and successful uh, at the end of the day. You know, on that note, we were also talking a little bit about, you know, how the underlying systems and processes and ways of building software is changing already and will undergo massive change over the next few years. 
And obviously, software security is to secure the software that is being built. And if the way software is being built changes, then we should probably think about how to address security for that. Tell me a little bit more about what you're seeing over the next three to five years in terms of changes to the software development world and implications of security on it. I think the most obvious change is one that everyone's talking about, and that's large language models, LLMs. We're seeing a lot of interest in developers in like, hey, how do we do this? Like, We all know that developers have copied code off of all kinds of sites for generations. Like, There's there's a lot of code that's been copied and moved around and saved and changed. and But to a large degree, that is still a very human-derived thing. Well, now we're seeing you know, LLMs being plugged into developers' IEs and giving them insights with things like Copilot. And I think one of the interesting questions that's really popped into my mind is, that's great, but how did I train that LLM? Like, where did it really learn? Like, if it suddenly says, hey, here's how you can write this function better, but where it took that function learning from was something in the open source world, and I'm now not consciously making better changes to it, maybe I've accidentally incorporated in something that I maybe shouldn't have. Or I'm incorporating code that isn't the best in terms of operational efficiency. Like, oh, that's great. That was quick and easy. Click. That's awesome. But great. Now it takes five times as long to execute. And those sort of problems don't look like security problems initially, but I think they become one over time. If you're not consciously thinking about how you put the pieces together, because that's where I think security is really important. It's that breakdown of communication between two components. That's where security really happens. In threat modeling, we talk about, you know, hey, where's our boundary? That boundary is anytime you have someone who is maybe not fully understanding a design or not fully understanding an output and didn't, maybe they didn't ask the right question or, you know, hey, they, they got a great design, but the way they built it didn't quite line up. That's where things get interesting. With LLMs and machine learning helping us in that space, there's now a new player there. How well do I understand that player? How well do I understand what they're giving me? Like, we all would love the holy grail of this. I'm writing code and automatically fixes it. But at the same time, do I really trust the machine to give me a fix that, that understands all the stuff around that code that is now different? And that's always the challenge for humans as well. Like, how far out do I have to go or I've gone far enough? And how you know how far has the machine gone or it's gotten far enough? Those, I think, are going to continue to be questions for us. And I think for at least a little while, there's going to be a lot of questions in development organizations about, hey, we want the power, we want the help, we see these as great tools, but how do we use them responsibly? How do we use them in a way that doesn't now create a new problem for us because we think, great, this awesome shiny thing is here. How do we move that forward? And I think that's also going to extend into other areas of security. You're going to see, you know, we're already seeing it in things like Microsoft's announcement of Copilot for security, which is designed to help SOC teams look at issues. Like, great. But how well does it understand what normal is? Like, if I'm already compromised and sees compromised as normal, is it going to call that out or does it know what to do about it? I, I don't <laughs> think it does. You know, we're still talking about machines that are running on mathematical algorithms. They're really not. It's the illusion of intelligence. I'll be honest, I've always hated the term artificially intelligent. I think when we get there, it's going to be synthetic intelligence. As a former biologist, I, I look at it that way. Like, it's just not biological. It's not fake. That's what I think I want to think of artificial. That's awesome. how these How these machines help us do these things is going to be an interesting question um, for everyone because of what it can do both positively and negatively. Any tool has problems like that. 
and it's going to create entirely new areas we have to think of because you can poison a model. Like if I know where the model's getting down from, I can poison the model. Now I have a downstream effect. I'm not monitoring for that. Now what do I do? Or you know, if maybe my training data is not that great, and then now I have a model that has a gap that creates an issue I didn't know I had. How do I find that? So I, you know, I think there's going to be a whole lot more questions than there are answers for. Yeah. So a lot of things around us are changing and we all also have a day job, but a core part of the day job is to keep up with what's actually happening around the world, right? So we can be sort of prepare ourselves for the future. Are there any pointers, resources that you can share with the audience where they can go to specifically on this topic on, you know, impact from LLMs or other changes around software development, how we can keep thinking about building better security for those? Where would you go to learn? Honestly, I use LinkedIn a lot. There's a lot of great people I've worked with over the years that post things on LinkedIn that they're talking about or they're writing books. I think there's a lot of people thinking about this issue. I think you're going to start seeing more talks about it at a lot of conventions. I heard a little bit of it this year at B-Sides. I heard a little bit of it during DEF CON. I think those you're going to continue to hear people sort of conjecturing, trying to figure it out. I think it's the early days right now. I think Reddit is actually a pretty good resource. I really like the the software development Reddits that are out there because I think they're open. I think Stack Exchange has a lot of good stuff where people are discussing this as well, Hacker News. And that's a challenge of being a leader. I mean, that's the other challenge I think we haven't really delved into here is the challenge of being a leader is I moved out of a technical world into a space where I have to do things like strategic planning and all this other stuff, but I have to also care for the people who are doing this stuff. That's that's a big part of my job making sure the engineers who, who work with me are supported and can do their jobs and are encouraged to go do more learning. And I think that's the key to success is no matter who you are, you've got to constantly be learning new stuff. you got to constantly ask more questions. I think when we stop learning and asking questions is probably when we die. And if you're doing that, you're going to be constantly growing and having new challenges. And I think that fits back into our, you know, the beginning of our talk. How did I get all these interesting jobs? I asked interesting questions. I asked the what if. Or the, and the whys, and I sort of chased them down because I found them to be interesting. And as long as you continue to do that, I think you can continue to be successful in whatever it is you want to be. If you want to be a leader, great. If you want to be a great engineer, you're still going to have to ask some more questions because the world isn't static as we discussed. That's such a good insight. Be curious, ask more questions. That's what makes security people really good security people as well, right? Like you're just curious about things and trying to exploit things in different ways, but also take the same mindset ask more questions about the world around you, whether it's your professional career or how the world of software or security is changing and how you know how you pick your next move and into next jobs and what have you. Asking more questions, be more thoughtful. That's amazing. Curtis, thank you so much for the time here. This has been such a phenomenal conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you again for being on the podcast. No, thank you, Arsha. I really enjoyed it. And this was awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.